Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kanapis. And I'm Kaylee. And today we'll be discussing the infamous CTA bribery scandal of 1984. Just a warning, today's story contains themes of suicide and gun violence, so please continue listening with caution. So our story today begins and ends with one man, and that is 47-year-old Robert Bud Dwyer. So Robert Bud Dwyer, who went by his middle name, Bud, was an all-American boy. And when I say all-American, I really mean like he grew up on a farm in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, where he like milked cows, repaired fences, like you name it. He's like a farm boy, right? Mm-hmm. He was also an avid hunter and outdoorsman, and in high school he played basketball and football. Like, like this is like the most American thing, right? Yeah. And not to mention his name is Bud. Like His name is fucking Bud. <laughs> yeah. So he grew up in rural Pennsylvania in the 1940s and 50s, and he was so good at football, in fact, and was so passionate about it, that he got a scholarship going to Teal College, which was also in Pennsylvania. And later he became a high school civics teacher and he was the assistant football coach himself. Unfortunately, he did have dreams to go on to do like more professional football, but he sustained an injury at one point and it kind of ruined his career, but he was happy being a teacher. So Bud originally focused his college studies on economics before he got his master's in education and later political science from Allegheny College. While working at the local high school as a civics teacher and assistant football coach, Bud met his future wife, Joanne. She was also a teacher. However, before Bud and Joanne got married, Bud spent the summer in Poland, which was allegedly what inspired him to enter the political arena. His experience in Poland strengthened his appreciation for American democracy, leading him to run for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And at only 25 years old, Bud became the youngest person ever elected. Even now? Like, at the time, being 25 years old, no one that young had ever been elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's currently the case, but at the time, it was. Um, But as you can imagine, being an active politician was hard on Bud and Joanne's marriage, especially because they lived over four hours away from the Capitol building in Harrisburg. So he would often be gone all week, and he would only be able to come home for the weekends. Meanwhile, his wife Joanne was a full-time teacher, but somehow they still decided that they wanted to have kids, um, even though their schedules were really strained, and they had their oldest, a son named Robbie, in 1965, so he's named after his dad. And then in 1968, they had a daughter named Diane. So there's a cute little American family of four. One boy, one girl. Like, this is so... Quiz essential. It's so picturesque, right? Yeah. Except for, like, being gone for the week and just having to come back on the weekends. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, like I said, Bud became a Pennsylvania representative, and he was re-elected twice before deciding that he wanted to run for state senate in 1970, which he won. And very impressively, he never missed a single Senate vote, despite also being a full-time law student at Dickinson School of Law, which he later graduated from in 1977. So side note, pretty much if you watch any documentaries, read any articles, listen to anyone who knew him personally, this is just how Bud was. Like, he was so, so hardworking. And I don't really know what it was like from the perspective of his family, They always talk really highly of him, but I know that that shit could not have been easy. Having your dad being a full-time law student, and he's a senator, and, like, he never misses a single Senate vote, which, like, makes him sound like a great person, but also I'm like, oh, that'd be so stressful if your dad being gone all the time. So, yeah, it sounds like his whole family was really hardworking, too. (laughs) Yeah. 
They I were mean, all like, really hardworking. That kind of goes back to like the country boy thing. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of how country folk are raised. Is that like you just work from dawn till dusk? Yeah. You know. Just throw your fucking back out all the all day long. And that's a theme that's going to continue throughout this episode. Is that you have to remember, he is a country boy. Like, he was taught good old-fashioned hard work, and that's kind of how he carried that into his politics. During his third term in the Senate, Bud was supposed to attend a meeting with the state treasurer, and that meeting forever changed the trajectory of his life. So Bud was supposed to attend a meeting with the Pennsylvania state treasurer, but the treasurer just never showed up. Bud was so upset by the treasurer's obvious poor commitment to his responsibilities that Bud decided that he was going to run for the position. (laughs) He was like, this dude can't even do his fucking job. It's my turn. (laughs) That's funny. I think it's really funny. So Bud runs and he wins. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This guy's never lost an election. No, he just, he just wins everything. Um, and to be honest, like, he's really likable, like, he was really personable, and he, he wasn't a shoe-in. This man didn't have any kind of political history in his family. Like, he doesn't come from a long line of politicians, like, what we normally see in America. Mm-hmm. Where, like, your dad's a politician, you're a politician, your future children are politicians. He mm-hmm. didn't have any of that. Like, he came from nothing. So... He wins the the position for state treasurer in 1981. And with his little family in tow, Bud Dwyer visited every county in the state of Pennsylvania. In order to win this election, he visited county fairs, he went to festivals, he attended church dinners, just traveling throughout the state in his little family's station wagon with like their little camper hitched <gasps> behind it. <gasps> By all accounts, Bud Dwyer's hard work was paying off, but unfortunately, it was only a matter of time before he learned the hard way that gaining success as a high-ranking politician isn't always about hard work or even it being a clean fight. Because, Kaylee, what do we know about how do you become a successful politician in America? (laughs) (laughs) You kiss ass and you take money from rich people. That's how you become powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's really You kick the knees out from everyone around you. <laughs> One of the themes in this episode that I saw repeated in multiple articles was, if you're a politician, you can't take anything personally. And I think that's pretty true. I mean, but we already know Bud is petty as hell. Like, what do you he mean? Ran, he ran for treasurer just because that guy stood him up <laughs> for a meeting. He drove his family around the whole state with a camper attached to the station wagon. <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not shitting on him. I I admire it. So far anyway. I don't know what this guy does. If he's the good guy or the bad guy. <laughs> Bud Dwyer, like I said, he's a he's a country boy at heart and he thinks that uh like on a on a farm it's like if you work hard and you do the right thing and you're honest, then everything works out for you, like for the most part. In politics, is that how it works? No, it's it's quite the opposite of that. He had a very like simple, straightforward, probably morality tied to to hard work, right? A very uh, meritocracy type mm-hmm. thing. But in politics, over and over again, we have a very clear track record. That's never how it is. So one of Bud's responsibilities as the state treasurer is auditing the government's spending and making necessary adjustments, which is when he incidentally made a powerful enemy out of then-governor Dick Thornburg. Oh, yeah. You don't touch people's money. That's how this is going to get. Oh, man. Oh, no, Bud. I'm worried. I would think that Bud would know what would go into being a treasurer, but I wonder if he oversimplified it and didn't realize that When you become a treasurer, you're going to either be their best friend or their worst enemy whenever you tell people how they're supposed to use their money. Maybe he just had a more simple thought process attached to it. Like, like he was like, that's just the way politics is. Maybe he didn't take it personally and therefore he didn't think anybody else did either. But when people's money is at stake, people become demons. Exactly. So Bud was so excited to start this new position. He was really good at it and he had an eagle eye for like noting discrepancies and he really just wanted to do the best by the taxpayers, right? He wanted to clean up the whole system and it was the 80s. Mm -hmm. And in the 80s, it was all about modernization and computers. 
And so he went into it thinking like, I'm going to clean this all up and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to get reelected because people are going to love me, right? The taxpayers loved him because that's who he was serving. And as a public servant, that's who he was supposed to be serving. Yeah. But that's not how the governor saw it. Because what ended up happening is that when Bud Dwyer was auditing some of the government spending, he noticed that the governor was misusing funds. In particular, he noted that the governor's wife, a woman named Ginny, all of her travel expenses were being paid by taxpayers instead of out of their personal pocket, like whenever he would go on business trips and stuff. Mm -hmm. And technically, like, that's kind of not what you're supposed to do. Like, his expenses are covered by the taxpayers, but if he's got, like, family members and people going with him, they're supposed to pay out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Right, because she doesn't technically need to be there or go where he's going. And then the other thing is that he was also using expenses. He was using, like, government officials to chauffeur his kids around at college and, like, oh acting my. as security guards. Oh, my God. Which he wasn't supposed to be doing. Like, these aren't huge things. Like, but I they're expensive great. things. Yeah. And they're things that if he wanted that lifestyle, he should he should be paying for it out of pocket, right? Yeah. And that's how Bud felt about it. So he he tried to nix these things. But what ended up happening is Bud didn't want to make any of this public. He just wanted to quietly be like, hey, you need to stop doing this. And Dick Thornburg, the governor, took it very personally and essentially set out to ruin Bud Dwyer for embarrassing him. Because he was being told that he was misusing funds. In his mind, he was like, how dare he accuse me of misusing funds? Like, he's making it sound like I'm a bad person and I'm not a bad person. Was it embarrassment or was it, this guy's a problem? Like, <laughs> he's stepping on our toes trying to do the things that we want to do. And this is only going to escalate. So we got to get rid of him now. That's That's what my brain goes to. Not necessarily like, you embarrassed me, but more like... You are in my way. You're, you're, yeah, you're a problem. Yeah. It's, yeah, it was probably a mixture of both. He's just like, nah, this guy's got to go, right? <laughs> and the, they're both Republicans. And so I think in the beginning when Bud got elected, he was like, sweet, another Republican, you know? Yeah. We're going to be totally chummy. And then this happens and he's like, oh, this guy. This guy's a narc. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's actually doing his job. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> That's what happened. Right? Yeah. It's like, this is, we're laughing about it, but that's literally exactly what is happening here. Yeah. He thinks that, oh, we're on the same political side, so it's going to be also, it's going to be fine. Yeah. But, I can just get away with whatever I want. But he didn't anticipate that Bud doesn't come from a history of politicians. He actually has a moral backbone and yeah. like, is, is trying to actually do his job the way it's supposed to be done and follow laws. Their relationship is understandably very strained. And then in the early 1980s, so just as he's starting out as state treasurer, it was discovered that Pennsylvania school teachers had overpaid their social security taxes. Mm -hmm. And it was the governor's responsibility to award a contract to a reputable accounting company that could figure out how much each state employee would be reimbursed. So between 1979 and 1981, too much money was being taken from these state employees. And so now the, Pennsylvania, now the state of Pennsylvania had to figure out how much money to pay back to each of them. And they wanted a third party to do it. Yes. They needed to award a contract to a company that could do all this work for them. So this is where a man named John Torquato Jr. comes into the picture. So John Torquato Jr. grew up in Pennsylvania. His father was a powerful Democratic Party chairman for 36 years until he was convicted of public corruption in 1980 in connection to an extortion plot. Oh, okay. Yeah. So apparently Torquato, this is going to be confusing, but there's Torquato Sr. and there's Torquato Jr. Right? Okay. And Torquato, so Torquato Sr. was the guy that got extortion charges. Yeah, so he was a public figure in Pennsylvania. He was a Democratic politician for almost 40 years. Until about 1979, 1980, he gets convicted for extortion. And what he was doing, I had to look this up. So what he was doing exactly is Torquato Sr., he had the ability to award contracts to companies doing government jobs, right? 
Mm-hmm. What he would do is he would go to these companies who wanted to bid and say, hey, I'll award you this contract if you give me a cut of the money in return. So he's stealing from the government, right? So this is happening. This is all happening like just a few years before Bud Dwyer is treasurer. And then we have John Jr. So John Torquato Sr., right? He gets convicted. He goes to prison for extortion. His son, John Torquato Jr., does not go into politics. But he definitely inherited his father's proclivity for dirty dealings. Oh my god. And in 1983, so just a few years after his own father was convicted for extortion, John Jr. cooked up an almost identical scheme. The people who should be in politics never are, unfortunately. And the people who are always in politics always should never be. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) They should be in prison. (laughs) We should send them to Australia like the old days. JK, I don't think Australia would appreciate that. The very penal much. colonies? <laughs> yeah, Australia would be very upset. Yeah, they wouldn't love that. So Torquato Jr. finds out that the state of Pennsylvania needed to find a company to recover all of the money that the school teachers overpaid, right? And he just so happens to know a company. Of course he does. Based out of his own little bungalow in Newport Beach, California. John Torquato Jr. had started a company called Computer Technology Associates, which is often just shortened to CTA. And CTA only had three full-time employees. There was the CEO, her name was Judy Ellis. There was the vice president, Janice Kincaid. And then there was John himself, who was dubbed the secretary on all the paperwork. Hashtag women-owned business. Yes. Just kidding, but this is not going to go well, so I'm... Well, no, you're pointing out exactly what's going to happen. So what wasn't immediately known is that Judy, who's listed as the CEO, was actually just John's, like, romantic partner slash live-in girlfriend. Oh, God. And she was essentially just a puppet in order to win government contracts because it was a woman-owned company. Yeah. Exactly. This has been going on since the 80s. Yeah. People still do this. God damn it. Uh, But it gets worse. So she's not really the CEO. She's just kind of his romantic partner. But for all intents and purposes and on all the paperwork, she's listed as the CEO. And then their other, one other full-time employee, Janice Kincaid, who's listed as vice president. What do you think her job is? (laughs) (laughs) To also be... A woman name on there to drown out the fact that he's in there. Is that his wife? No. So she, for lack of a better term, is basically a prostitute. Oh. Who John uses to bribe powerful men with sexual favors to get what he wants. Oh my my god. So he's sex trafficking this woman. Yes. Okay. We hate him. I mean, we hated him before, but we, we extra hate him. He's, what's the word, swarmy, smarmy? Smarmy, I think. I think you're right. (laughs) Smarmy. That's not a bad enough word to describe what he is, honestly. Skeezy, greasy. A f***head. That's what he is. He's a f***head, yeah. (laughs) A shit bag. A bag of shit. (laughs) So, literally, this is the company that he's saying is going to be able to reimburse 600 school districts worth of state employees oh my god it's three people one is just his girlfriend and one is just a random lady that he pimps out so in 1983 torquato got to work doing what torquato men do best which is bribery so think about what his dad was doing that's exactly what john jr is about to do what happened to disgracing the family name honestly like we should have never let his son into the business after what his dad did (laughs) what i don't understand is like as we go in further in this story how he got as far as he did because at some point put wouldn't people be like hey aren't you torquato senior son like that's probably exactly why he got as far as he did because like skeezy people benefited from it and if skeezy people are powerful people and they had money they wanted him to also have power so that they could continue getting government jobs 
You know, that's actually that's actually exactly what it is, Kaylee. Thank you. <laughs> so this is what Torquato Jr. does. So first, he uses his personal connections, which he has a lot of. So first, he goes to his uncle. He has an uncle named Ray Torquato who worked in Harrisburg, which is the state capital of Pennsylvania. And Ray advises his nephew to contact a man named David Herbert, who at the time was the state social security director. This is when Torquato learned that the contract was an in-house contract, meaning that preference was supposed to be given to local Pennsylvania companies. But like I said before, Torquato's company was based out of California. So he's already got one roadblock. He's like, Ugh, how am I going to get around this, right? Mm -hmm. Determined to still win the contract, John Torquato actually flew out to Pennsylvania to meet David Herbert in person. And, you know, I've never met this guy, but I'm guessing he's just really personable and really convincing and really manipulative because it just sounds like everyone who comes into contact with him becomes his friend and, like, agrees to do things. He's just one of those guys, right? So he flies out to meet with David Herbert and he convinces him that CTA was the best company for this recovery contract. Oh my god. And if you're wondering why he's putting in all this work and why he wanted this contract so badly, it's because it's worth millions of dollars. Also, his mindset is that if he can successfully execute this one contract, then it would probably open the door in the future to more contracts just like it. As it turns out, Torquato had extensive connections within the Republican Party of Pennsylvania, and he used these contacts to network with as many powerful people as possible. He knows that if he can just bribe the right person, he's going to make millions of dollars. As luck would have it, he had an old friend named George Gold that worked in the state treasurer's office, and Torquato told George Gold that he would donate $500,000 to the Republican Party if he could get them, could get CTA, this recovery contract. The problem, though, is that the recovery contract is supposed to be approved and awarded through the governor's office, not the treasurer's office. But, wouldn't you know, not suspiciously at all, on April 5th, 1984, Governor Thornburg, who, as I mentioned before, has a beef with Bud Dwyer, Mm -hmm. signs Act 38 into law, which authorized the state treasurer's office to award the tax recovery contract, not the governor anymore. So now the decision falls on Bud Dwyer, all-American boy. (laughs) So it's Bud Dwyer's signature that will finalize this contract, and it's Bud Dwyer who will end up taking the fall when the FBI finally uncovers all of these bribes. What? you have any thoughts so far? Why would Bud Dwyer take the fall for this? How? Because because I'm guessing he signs it off because everybody around him is like, yeah, this is legit and it looks clean from what he can see. And so he signs it off. But then he gets framed as the person who didn't do due diligence and therefore is responsible. Pretty much. So... To this day, the mystery that remains about this case almost 40 years later is why, why Bud Dwyer, noted for his honesty and and his commitment to transparency within American democracy, decided to award CTA this recovery contract, and he signed his name on May 10th, 1984. Was it under duress? Or was he just manipulated? Well, because for one thing, CTA was not a reputable company. The state of Pennsylvania had never worked with them before, but also CTA's bid for the contract was twice as high as all the other companies wanting to perform the work. Why would Bud award this contract? Did he actually not sign it? No, he admits that he signed the contract and he awarded the contract to them. The most obvious and lasting explanation is that Bud Dwyer accepted a bribe. But most everyone who knew him and worked with him all say the same thing, which is that Bud Dwyer was innocent. He would never do something like that. He would never accept a bribe. Was he extorted? Just like the the victims of John, what's his name? John Torquato Sr. Torquato Sr., yeah. Did John Torquato Jr. step into his father's shoes extorting people? We'll talk about it more. Because I think more of this is going to unravel and you'll start to see what's going on. Some people believe to this day that he's innocent. Some people believe to this day that he's guilty. And so I'm curious to see after 
you hear all the facts where you lean because it's complicated. So Bud Dwyer signs this contract on May 10th, 1984. Less than a month after he awarded the contract, investigators arrive at the CTA headquarters in California. You know, that little bungalow where yeah. he's living with his girlfriend and that random lady? In Newport Beach. In Nor Newport Beach. <laughs> so investigators arrive at their headquarters, and by July 1984, another month later, the FBI has gotten involved. Interestingly enough... The person responsible for sending these investigators to interrogate CTA was none other than a man named Al Benedict, who at the time was Bud Dwyer's immediate competition for re-election in just a few months. Hmm. The man who wanted Bud's job seemed to be anxiously waiting for him to mess up. So Al Benedict sends the investigators out there, investigators, somebody anonymously, we don't know who, tips off the FBI... It could be any number of people. FBI shows up. They seize all of the computers, all the documents and everything, right? And it's not looking good. So Torquato and his associates eventually plead guilty to all of the charges against them. And originally Torquato was looking at 80 years in prison, but he had 15 of the 16 counts removed, reducing his prison sentence to only four years. How did he get them removed? Because he accepted a plea deal and agreed to testify oh, for the government. My God. We're, we're too lenient on politicians, honestly. Bring back guillotines. The person who was responsible for offering this plea deal was a man named Roy Zimmerman, who was the state's attorney general, who, according to FBI documents that leaked in 1987, was also offered a $100,000 bribe from John Torquato. Oh, my god it's a cesspool and it's been a cesspool for for forever i i can't even say what i want to say because i'll get flagged i'm already on a watch list but listen i might get <laughs> arrest what watch list all of them i'm on well not all of them actually <laughs> the government watch list for fucking radicals because i'm oh, i hate it here Continue. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're, that's exactly, that's the response that everyone should have had, but they didn't at the time. And so Roy Zimmerman, who's the state attorney general, he offers this plea deal. He gets Torquato's sentence from 80 years to four years. And it's like, oh, it's just a coincidence that he also was offered a bribe. Right? Just a goofy little coincidence. Yeah. Honestly, the more that you read into it, though, it's like, who didn't he bribe? He was bribing <laughs> people left and right. He was handing out, like, candy at a parade. A menace. And it should be noted that Roy Zimmerman, who may or may not have taken this $100,000 bribe, he's, like, besties with Governor Thornburg. And when it comes time for Bud Dwyer's trial... Bud Dwyer is actually also offered a plea bargain where they told him that he would only have to serve a maximum of five years in prison if he pled guilty and resigned from office. But he maintained his innocence and said, like, no, I'm not going to confess to something that I didn't do. And he had some misplaced faith in the justice system and thought, I'm a hardworking, honest person and I didn't do anything wrong. And Newsflash, kids. Meritocracy doesn't exist. <laughs> Continue. He <laughs> didn't know that, though. People who believe in it never know it. <laughs> One of the words to describe Bud Dwyer that gets thrown around a lot, on top of hardworking, honest, is also naive. A lot of people said that he was naive and did not know what he was involved in, and he had a lot of misplaced faith in the justice system. So they offer him a plea deal for only five years in prison, and he rejects it. He says, no, I'm going to go through this honestly, I'm going to go through this trial and just do everything right, and everything will go right, right? Wrong. Wrong. It's like, uh, yeah. However, information discovered on one of John Torquato's computers indicated that Dwyer had been offered $300,000 and was slated to receive that money after the contract was awarded. So when they go through Torquato's computers... I don't know exactly what it looked like, if it looked like a contract, if it looked like just an email, but they see something that says, like, yes, Torquato is planning on giving 
Bud Dwyer $300,000 after the contract is awarded. I'm suspicious of that immediately. Immediately. Like, did he keep detailed records of everyone else he bribed as well? (laughs) Because that seems fucking stupid. (laughs) I actually don't know. Because that seems like specifically planted right there. (laughs) Potentially, yeah. That's one of the theories. Is that he just, like, quickly drafted something up, like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. For people to find, magically. So, even though none of the money was ever exchanged, so, like, it says that Dwyer was supposed to receive this money, it never actually changes hands. But under Pennsylvania law, Dwyer would still be found guilty just for simply accepting the bribe, which caused him to face up to 55 years in prison. Dwyer's defense team felt that the prosecution didn't have enough evidence to prove that he'd been bribed and never had Dwyer take the stand at his own trial. Whether or not his personal testimony would have changed the outcome of his trial, we may never know. But Bud Dwyer was found guilty on 11 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, perjury, and interstate transportation in aid of racketeering and was scheduled to be sentenced on January 23rd, 1987, so just about a month later. So I think it was like December 18th or something that he was convicted, and then he had his last Christmas as a free man with his family before, in January, he was supposed to be sentenced and find out how long his prison term was going to be, but he was fully expecting to get like the full 55 years. But the day before his sentencing, he decided that he was going to schedule a press conference. So he asked all of his top aides and all the news reporters to show up um, because he wanted to, like, have some last words, right? Because he also felt like since he wasn't allowed to testify at his trial and he was about to be sentenced and locked up for 55 years, no one actually got to hear from his own mouth. So he saw this as his opportunity to, like, get the news cameras, I'm going to have a great story for you, and I'm going to explain, right? So at about 11 a.m. on January 22nd, 1987, he held this press conference. So at 11 a.m., the press conference began, and everyone assumed that Bed was going to make some final thank yous and goodbyes, and he was most likely going to resign from his position as state treasurer before his sentencing the next day. Instead, he spent about 30 minutes proclaiming his innocence, and he had all of these typed up pages, like he had a stack of papers that he was reading through, and it actually got to the point where people were getting bored because the news reporters were kind of there to like quickly film his resignation. They were going to post it on TV and then they were going to leave is what they were thinking. Right. They're like, this is all gone on long enough. This guy's obviously guilty. He needs to just say his goodbyes and thank yous and then go to prison. They're like, this isn't juicy. What the fuck is this? Give me something good. So, some people described it as him rambling. They're like, this guy's just up here rambling. And they're getting just kind of fidgety. And they're like, when is he going to resign? Where is this going? And he just keeps talking. And he goes on for like 30 minutes. And he starts talking about conspiracies against him, about Governor Thornburg, about Attorney General Roy Zimmerman, and about like all of the corruption in Pennsylvania politics. And he even, he tries to make it an ode to reform He tries to say, like, we need to reform the justice system because I'm innocent and something like this should have never happened. I thought that since I was an honest man and I always did the right thing that I would never be in in this position, but that's not true and that's wrong. I'm summarizing, obviously, but he goes on for 30 minutes essentially saying, like, there's all this corruption and I'm innocent and this never should have happened, right? And people start to, like, pack up their bags to leave. Damn. Cold. Ice cold. And this is when he stops them and he's just like, no, no, no. Don't go anywhere. Like, I'm not done. Right? And so he, like, tries to, like, quickly go through his speech that he has prepared. And he's flipping through his papers. Right? So he spends 30 minutes proclaiming his innocence, exposing the corruption within the governor's office, believing that Governor Thornburg was using his connections to persecute Dwyer and make him resign. And actually, there's FBI documents that suggest that Governor Thornburg and his top lieutenants knew about the bribery conspiracy from the get-go because they themselves were offered bribes. Rather than report the bribery conspiracy to law enforcement to stop the crime from happening, Thornburg and his minions suggested 
that the conspirators take their scheme to treasurer Bud Dwyer in an obvious effort to set him up. And just as the news reporters are packing up and starting to leave, Bud Dwyer quickly gets to the last couple pages of his speech before he pulls out no a bunch of manila envelopes. So he pulls out all these manila envelopes and he keeps talking and he hands them to all of his top aides and they're all labeled saying like, give this to so-and-so, give this one to so-and-so, give this one to so-and-so. It's got people's names and on the inside there's a bunch of paperwork, right? Hannah, does he kill himself? And just as he's handed out the last envelope, he has his own manila envelope where he pulls out a 357 Magnum revolver. Fucking hell. And... He had strategically set up the room before anyone got there with a giant table in the front that he was standing behind so that nobody could stop him. So initially, people see him holding this gun and they think that he's going to kill someone. Mm -hmm. Pulls out this gun and they're like, oh my god, right? So people are ducking, people are screaming, people are going for the door, right? Everyone's just terrified of why this man has just pulled out a gun out of nowhere. No one was expecting this. And... As people try to stop him, because there's a couple of his top aides that are like, Bud, what are you doing? And they try and leap forward to stop him, but there's this giant table in their way that he strategically placed there. And he tells everyone, like, if this is going to upset you, look away. I don't want to, I don't want to upset anyone. Understatement of Um, the century. (laughs) But... They can't get to him in time, and he puts the barrel in his mouth, and he dies instantly, firing straight into his brain. And he collapses to the floor. Oh my god. And all of the news cameras were still rolling, and they recorded this man's suicide, and it was playing on the TV, like, all day. Oh my god. And you can still find versions of it. Most have been edited or wiped from the internet but i think there's still a few circulating um and you can find copies of his last speech which we now know is kind of a suicide note Mm -hmm. and he actually never even got to finish the last couple of pages that you can read now because they rushed him right he couldn't get through his entire speech that he wanted to before he was like okay i gotta end it now and he and he killed himself Mm mm-hmm But literally nobody knew that he was going to do this. Like his wife, his two children, his son at the time was 21 and was in college at the time. His son got ready with him that morning. I think they had breakfast together. And Bud asked his son, Rob, to give him a ride into work to the office for his press conference. And what he told his son, Rob, was, as soon as your class is over this morning, I want you to go straight home. And so that's what Rob did. He went to his college classes that morning and then he drove straight home because he knew his dad was probably still going to be in the middle of his meeting, Mm -hmm. in the middle of his press conference. He got home and his mom and his sister were there and there were two of his father's aides there with envelopes. And even his aides had no idea why they were sent to Bud's house. They were just told, take these envelopes and go to my house and look after my family. And so that's what they did. But they didn't know that Bud had killed himself yet? No, they were just at the house. They didn't know why they were there. And then they saw, every, all of them saw it on the news. No. So that's how his wife and his children found out was just through the news. I think it was either the TV or the radio. That's awful. His explanation, Bud's explanation for his very public suicide was essentially to draw attention to the corruption. I think he knew that if he went quietly or if it wasn't as public of a spectacle, then people would just read about it in newspapers and forget about it. But the fact that it was recorded and there were so many witnesses, Mm -hmm. he was hoping that his story would affect change. That people would pay attention and that something would be done about it. This, in my mind, is like in the same vein as people who set themselves on fire during protests and Mm -hmm. things like that. Because he didn't hurt anybody else. He didn't want to hurt anybody else. Like, it legitimately sounds like he was trying to get the attention of people to look into this. Like, normally I don't like uh, sensationalizing suicide. Yeah. But his entire purpose, and that's what he stated about his suicide, was that he wanted everyone to talk about it. 
Yeah. Like, he told the news reporters before he pulled the trigger, like, this is the story. This is your story. Like, please broadcast it far and wide. I want everyone to hear about it. And to some extent, I'm sure people maybe our parents' age or older probably remember it from the 80s, but I hadn't heard about it until I started researching it. I hadn't heard about it, clearly. I go back and forth. Like, originally I was just like, oh, okay, he's probably innocent and there was just corruption all around him. And then I dug a little bit deeper and I'm like, why would he have signed off on that contract? It makes absolutely no sense. And then... I guess his explanation for why he signed off on the contract was essentially that CTA was offering to do the contract and complete it a lot faster than other companies. Whether or not they actually could with three people who know nothing about tax recovery, I don't know. But one theory is that Bud may have just been persuaded that the time is money principle was coming into play. That, oh, they're charging us more for the contract, but they'll get it done quicker And so in the grand scheme of things, we'll actually save money. Yeah. And it was possible that he was trying to get this done as soon as possible because it would look good for his re-election campaign. Exactly. So that's the other thing is that he was supposed to be re-elected. He was running for re-election in just a few months. And like you said, it would look really good. And you would get all of those school teachers votes if Mm -hmm. you got them all their money back. Exactly. So is it possible he was legitimately bribed? I think that's a huge possibility. Yes. Um, I don't think anybody is exempt from corruption, especially in government when there's that much like unchecked power and everybody is just kind of looking the other way and encouraging it, right? Because that's what was happening. But I also think it's equally as possible that he did this relatively innocently and and maybe the government or the governor or and other people in government were in his ear also telling him like, this is like, this might not seem like a good deal up front but actually it is right because they had accepted bribes and they were trying to push this through too so they might have been buddying up to him telling him good things this is just speculation obviously but well there's a little bit more to it too is one of the key players that i didn't talk about because there's just so many there's so many characters in this story but there was a guy named bill smith and he worked closely with torquato jr and he was essentially his spy for the republican party Mm mm-hmm Um, He knew all the politicians. He got meetings with all of them. He was doing all of Torquato's bidding for him. Because Torquato, I think, was just in California for most of this. But then he's got this spy, Bill Smith, who was going around in Pennsylvania and buddying up and scheduling dinner conversations and offering bribes on his behalf. Mm -hmm. And um, Bill Smith ended up serving time in prison. He was convicted at the same time. But originally... Bill Smith stated that Dwyer was never bribed. Hmm. But then later at Dwyer's trial, he testified that he had been bribed with $300,000. So his story changed. And years later, so I can't remember when the documentary was made, but there's a documentary made more recently. And now Bill Smith is hella old, right? He's an old man. Yeah. And he got on the documentary and he told the documentarian that he feels really bad for what he did and he feels really bad about lying. But he said he did lie on the stand that he never he never bribed Dwyer. And the reason that he lied is because Torquato threatened his family. Dude. He said that Torquato had told him that if he didn't do what he said, that he was going to come home and find his son face down in the swimming pool. And he said that in order to get his own sentence reduced and to get a plea deal, he was going to have to side with the government and testify against Dwyer. And that tracks with the attorney general's buddy-buddiness and everything and accepting a bribe as well. Exactly. So I lean more toward Bud Dwyer being innocent, not because I think that his good old country boy roots and all of the positive testimonies of his family and friends have swayed me. Because I feel like anyone's kids or wife or best friends are going to say, nah, he was a great guy. You know, he would never do this. Like, I expect that from people's families. But the reason that I'm persuaded that he was innocent is because of Bill Smith retracting his testimony finding out more about the other politicians who were accepting bribes in my personal opinion it sounds like 
he naively signed the contract based on really bad advice from people that he trusted. Um, it sounds like people in his office, like Gold, was it George Gold? The guy in his treasury office who was accepting bribes, who was best friends or good friends with Torquato. And you have to remember that he, Bud Dwyer, was like brand new to this position. Yeah. Like he had never been treasurer before and he'd probably never had to award government contracts and he had the re-election coming up. It would have been so easy for someone to be like, hey, buddy, listen, uh, you've got re-election coming up. The school teachers want their money back. CTA can do it in this short amount of time. Overall, you're going to actually be, you're going to be saving money. This is going to look so good for your re-election and you're going to be the hero of the day. And he's like, okay. Not knowing that everyone around him is is getting money and he's not. Yep. <laughs> you know. And also his reaction to it. Him taking his own life and him pleading his innocence and writing this big, long... It was like 30 pages of, of talking about corruption and his false hope in the justice system. Like, it all really does sound like something that an innocent person who's being sent to prison would say. I'm in the same boat with you here. Like, I... Same. <laughs> also, I think it really... It makes me so sad, and I can't imagine how his family feels, because his children, they were only like... They were late teenagers, early 20s, right? When, mm -hmm. their, when their father died. Can't imagine how they feel, but I am just like racked with just grief that he thought the best way to go about this was ending his own life. Because he was only 47 years old. Mm -hmm. Like he still had so much life left to live and he had this wife that he loved and these two great kids that he loved. I couldn't figure out why he would choose suicide over not just wanting to try the appeals process, you know, like go to prison and keep trying to get out and keep pleading innocent. But apparently, as soon as he was removed from office, his family would no longer receive his pension. Oh. So the press conference was one day before his sentencing, and he was technically still the state treasurer when he killed himself. And so since he was never removed from office and he still held that title when he died, his family got to keep his pension, which at the time was like the highest amount ever awarded. That's so sad. And so I think that he did it as a last act of providing for his family, because if he had gone to sentencing the next day and gone to prison, he would have left his wife with no money and two kids and no husband and she would have had nothing. And because he killed himself, she had all of this money that she could then restart her life with. And it actually turned out to be very beneficial for her. Not losing her husband. That was terrible. <laughs> yeah. But she was able to start her life over again. She moved herself and her two kids to Arizona. And she wouldn't have been able to do that if she hadn't gotten that pension. But I'm sure she would have rather just had her husband alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can see from his perspective that he thought he he was painted into a corner and he felt like this is the best option. Yeah. Which is really sad and scary. Really sad. That's awful. And actually, um, due to the grief of Bud killing himself, his wife Joanne developed alcoholism um, and she drank very heavily the rest of her life and she eventually died of it uh, not too long ago. Oh, that's awful. All because people wanted their fucking money. <laughs> All over some fucking money. Did I ruin your day? Yeah. <laughs> My day is ruined. Now I'm going to be stewing over the corruption in the government. The rest of, <laughs> the rest of my life. <gasps> Not even just the rest of the day. The rest of my fucking life. It's really quite terrifying. Like, this is just one story from, like, 40 years ago. And we wouldn't have known about it unless... He didn't kill himself, honestly. Yeah. And yeah. even then, and even then, most people don't know about it. The moral of the story is you can do everything right and you could still go to prison. The other moral of the story is let's bully everyone who's a politician. <laughs> let's make them terrified to run for office. Let's make running for office be the last thing that anybody would ever want to do. Let's rearrange <laughs> the government. Let's change what it looks like. Let's change how it operates. Yeah. Because what he was fighting for, like the justice reform he was fighting for, I don't think.
think it ever happened. I don't think we're any better off than we were in the 80s. No. I don't think, largely, the justice system has ever functioned to serve justice. In reality, it's functioned to punish and to extort in a lot of cases. So Yeah. Part of his, because he, before he killed himself, he really was trying everything to get um, his conviction repealed. He was writing all these letters, all these letters to like, he wrote one, I think, to President Reagan at the time. Mm -hmm. Like he was writing all these letters being like, hey, this is what's going on. I'm completely innocent. I need somebody to step in because this is getting out of control. Right. And one of his pleas was toward the end, he realized like nobody's coming to save me and In one of his letters, he says something like, you know, it's too late to save me, but I'm hoping that by writing this letter, I can save people in the future from going through what I've been through and what my family has been through because it's been a nightmare is the word that he used. He said he felt like he was living in the twilight zone and that he was going to wake up and it was all going to be a bad dream. Mm -hmm. But he said that he specifically wanted a reevaluation of plea bargains because he feels like plea bargains are what brought his downfall, like the attorney general offering these plea bargains and offering these people a chance to reduce their sentences and encouraging them to lie is what caused him to get convicted. Mm -hmm. And he probably specifically turned down the plea deal because it might've felt like he was offering his false guilt up on a silver platter in order to avoid maximum punishment. But he felt like he shouldn't have had to do that in order for the truth to just be talked about in court. Yeah. None of this should have happened. Like this, instead of a comedy of errors, it's a tragedy of errors. But honestly, this also makes me think of how many people with literally no money, no power, no influence get fucked over by the justice system every day. People who we will never hear about ever because these people didn't have access to a news station, a platform, an audience, nothing. We know nothing about how either corruption screwed them over or or just the justice system didn't care enough to look into the truth yeah well thank you for joining us this week on crime suit podcast (laughs) (laughs) i would say i hope you enjoyed this story i hope this story really troubled you and ruined your day because that was the purpose of it um but be sure to come back next week we're gonna have an all-new story Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, you name it. We also have a website, crimesouppodcast.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and buy your very own Crime Soup merch. As always, we'll see you next week. Stay safe and bon appetit. (laughs) 